Happy Easter, everyone. Pastor and I are so excited and grateful that you've decided to join us for this incredible celebration of the death, burial, and resurrection of our unstoppable Savior. Pastor? Praise God. Well, as you can tell, Alice and I have dressed up for this Easter weekend. Now, I don't expect you to go and put on a suit and tie there in your living room or wherever you are, but maybe at least put on your best pajamas, okay? It is Easter and we're used to uh, dressing up. This year, of course, is totally, completely different, but we're excited about what God is going to do in hearts and lives. We're believing that many people are going to come to Christ uh, this weekend, not just here in Orlando, not just through the ministry of faith, but through the ministries of churches all over this city, all over this country, literally around the world. The emphasis this weekend is on the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And for that, we're so excited. Well, let me tell you something that I came across just recently. It was a story of an atheist here in Florida that hired an attorney because he felt like he was being discriminated against because atheists had no holidays. So he got this attorney and pressed the issue to court and the attorney stood up in court before the judge and he said, Your Honor, and he started his impassioned speech about why it wasn't right for Christians and Jews to have a holiday, but atheists to not have one. When he was finished, the judge leaned over his desk, said, case dismissed. At which time the attorney stood up and said, judge, this can't be fair. Christians have uh, Christmas and Easter and the Jews, they have Passover, Hanukkah and Yom Kippur. And the atheists, they have nothing. Well, the judge looked down at him and said, listen, according to Psalm 14 and 1 in the Bible, it says, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. And since your client is an atheist, that makes him a fool. So he does have a holiday. It's April 1st, Fool's Day. Well, I do uh, thank God that for the fact that we have a celebration called Easter. And today, we're going to be talking about the unstoppable Savior. Well, being unstoppable means that once you set a plan in motion, you're going to reach your destination if you're unstoppable, no matter what the obstacles are, what happens in your pathway, you're not going to let anything stop you. And that's the story of Jesus Christ, the unstoppable Savior. The plan put in place was found in Luke chapter 19, verse 10, where it says, For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save the lost. That was the mission. That was the plan put in place. And Jesus was not about to let anything stop him. God the Father 
was in on this, of course, the Holy Spirit sent to empower Jesus Christ, robed in flesh, but yet very God himself. So today, maybe you're sitting there and you have put a plan in motion. Maybe it's to become a nurse or uh, to open a business or to be a deputy or firefighter or 100,000 other different things. You put it in place. Let me challenge you. Don't let anything stop you. Be like Christ. With every obstacle that came his way, he pressed on, he overcame. And listen, this virus and quarantine is just a temporary pause to the plan that God has put in your life. Well, as we look at the life of Christ, Jesus faced all kinds of obstacles. Even when he was born, of course, Herod the Great was certainly disturbed by the news that there was a king being born in Bethlehem. And so as a result of that, later on, when the wise men didn't come back to tell him who it was and where he was, he had all the little boys, two years of age and under, killed. The enemy was trying to stop Jesus right in his infancy, but Jesus and his family got away. There was no way that God was going to allow anything to stop Christ, even as a child. Herod the Great missed that opportunity. And as a result, Christ went to Egypt with his parents. Later, they went to Nazareth, of course. You know, certainly there are all, all kinds of places in the Bible there are times that crowds and individuals tried to stop Jesus. One such incident took place in Luke chapter 4. It was in Christ's hometown of Nazareth. He had gone and already been led of the Spirit to start ministry. He was baptized in water, and he makes his way back to Nazareth. And there we pick up the story. He came to Nazareth, and on the Sabbath, the Bible says, as his custom was, he went into the synagogue and stood up. And they gave him the book, the parchment. And he turned to Isaiah chapter 4. And that's where we read in verse 18, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. Wow, the Bible says the poor heard him gladly. He preached the gospel, the good news that a savior had come. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind to set at liberty those who are oppressed of the enemy. Then in verse 20, we read, then he closed the book, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all who were in the synagogue 
were fixed on him. Draw a picture in your mind. Christ is there and that synagogue had read that verse out of Isaiah. The people sitting there knew it to be a messianic portion of scripture. Then he sits down and everybody's looking at him. I'm sure that he could almost feel the piercing glares of the people, but some in amazement because they were trying to place this Jesus they grew up with. Folks, we're talking about the people sitting around him were his neighbors, some that he called by name on an ongoing weekly basis as he was growing up there in Nazareth. Some of them, maybe because his father, his earthly father, was a carpenter, maybe Jesus and Joseph had delivered some furniture to many of their homes and had greeted them, and, and they all knew each other. And of course, Jesus was known as Mary's boy or Joseph's son. And here he is, sitting here, and they had already heard of things happening, about the miracles and the preaching. The word had filtered back to Nazareth. And here he sits, and people are looking at him. And now he says something that really astounds maybe every person in that synagogue. In verse 21, and he began to say to them, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Now them knowing it was a messianic verse, they were perplexed no doubt by that thought as they heard him say this. And then the next verse says, Many of them began to say, is this not Joseph's son? This can't be the Messiah. We know him. He's Jesus with the brothers and the sisters that live down the street and beyond. And so their minds being perplexed began to think of all kinds of things about Christ and their knowledge of him and what he was saying. And then Jesus went on to say some other things. He talked about two prophets in Israel. First of all, he said Elijah was sent to one widow. And he said there were many widows in Israel, but he was sent to a widow in Sidon, a foreigner, a person that these people in that synagogue would have looked down on. And then he told another story about lepers in Israel. But the prophet, Elisha, had only been sent to Naaman, the leper. And these people at that moment, realizing that he had just declared that Isaiah 4 was fulfilled in their ears, and now he's saying that God had preferred to foreigners, to the Jewish people, and they were enraged, the Bible says. They were filled with wrath. These people, his neighbors, 
Most of them, no doubt, his friends on some level. And the Bible says they jumped up. They grabbed him. They drug him out of the synagogue. The whole group of them, the whole crowd of them, drug him out through the doors toward a steep cliff. Took him over there with the intent to throw him off and kill him. And the Bible says that Jesus simply walked through the midst of them and away. Well, the enemy had tried to stop Jesus as a small child and failed. Here, he caused his hometown crowd, his neighbors, to go into an uproar, a murderous anger, and yet he slips away. No, Christ came to seek and to save the lost, and he was not about to be stopped. Well, the hordes of hell had entered that synagogue with the intent to take him out that day and failed. The culture today is full of crowds trying to stop the message of Jesus Christ. You don't want to be a part of the crowd that's trying to stop him, but the voices are getting louder and louder, but they will not drown out the message that he's come to seek and save the lost. Now, there are those in the crowd with the message, don't judge me. So many people don't even realize what that means. They say, don't judge me. You have no right to judge me. Who are you to tell me how to live? I do what makes me happy. In other words, everybody is a law unto themselves. Well, the next type of person is, it's not my fault. You don't know what I've been through. So you can't identify with me. And when someone tells them about the good news, their focus is on what has happened to them and the pain they feel worthy to carry. Another person says, and there are many voices that say, I'm young, I have time to give my life to Christ one day if I so choose. But the truth of the matter is, none of us know what day we have in the future to experience and enjoy. Today is the day of salvation, the Bible says. There are others that say, how am I supposed to believe in God with everything that's going on right now? The world is turned upside down. How am I supposed to turn to God and believe? But there will always be those in any crowd that will hear the message to seek and to save the lost. They will hear the message and they will respond and they will say, I choose to follow an unstoppable Savior with my whole heart. There will be more and more and more. As the end draws near, as the darker it gets, the more the light of Christ will shine. And do you know what? To the crowd, God says, 
and to maybe all of us, we've given God a million reasons not to love us. None of them has changed his mind. Hi, my name is Jerry Sharp, and this is my story. I grew up in a home where, looking back, I know now my parents loved me, but they didn't know how to express it. My mother grew up without a dad, in an abusive home with gambling, alcoholism, sexual promiscuity, and everything else. My dad grew up in a home in Cuba with Santeria, which is witchcraft, masonry, which is the occult, very dysfunctional. So as a child, I was exposed to behaviors that were something that I wish upon no child. I realized today that, you know, all these hardships that I went through, my parents were doing the best they could, but at that time I didn't know it. And it led me to an empty dark space where by the age of nine, I had already been exposed to drugs, alcohol, and pornography. And at that point, it really turned into more emptiness, more darkness. What I thought was innocent partying and escape through marijuana, eventually my appetite for sin grew where the marijuana wasn't cutting anymore. So I ended up into different types of pills, ecstasy, eventually cocaine, things I swore I never would do like heroin, I did. At one point, as I was feeding my addictions, as I was chasing the wind, looking for satisfaction, contentment, purpose, I ended up going into the drug world to satisfy not only my using and my needs to get high and everything else, but also as a means to money. And so even with all the money, it was never enough. When I thought I would get at this point, I wanted to be at this point. When I got to that point, I wanted to be at that point. And then at one point, I became a nightclub owner. And so you talk about having everything between the whole drug world and the money and the position and the people and everything else to now being the life of the party. But again, I'll never forget, I had one guy look at me and with all the champagne and all the women and all the men and everybody looks like models and having money could go out and buy whatever and looking at me and saying, Jerry, well, you're so miserable. What is it? I couldn't answer it. And so the pinnacle of the whole escalation of my addictions and the darkness and the emptiness and chasing the wind came when I met a woman that ended up leading to a pregnancy which led to an abortion. And on July the 4th of 1994, I ended up finding my ex-wife dead from a drug overdose in my bed. The ambulance and the paramedics came in and found her dead and couldn't resuscitate her. We got her to Winter Park Hospital. She was pronounced dead on arrival. And when the doctors were ready to quit shocking her, uh, giving her defibrillations to bring back her heartbeat, on the last attempt, because I was pleading with them, they got a faint heartbeat. They pumped oxygen into her manually and put her up in ICU. There for a day and a half we sat, machines were keeping her alive, and finally they came in and said, Mr. Sharp, we're sorry, there's nothing we do for your wife. The machines are keeping her alive and they're shutting down. I fell to the floor and they said, if you, uh, by some miracle, if she lives, She'll be in a vegetative state for the rest of her life on feeding tubes, and ultimately you as a husband have to make that decision. My mom came in, saw me distraught on the floor, and said, son, the only chance you have is to get right with the Lord. Matthew chapter 16, verse 21 through 23, says, from that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law and that he must be killed and on the third day raised to life. Peter took him aside and they began to rebuke him. 
Never, Lord. He said, this shall never happen to you. And Jesus turned to Peter and he said, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You don't have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. The New Living Translation says, you are seeing things merely from a human point of view, not from God's. Peter was ready for Jesus to set up his kingdom on earth. But when he hears the details of Christ's plan, it just doesn't make sense. It flies in the face of common sense that a king would die just as he's setting up his kingdom. And not only did the crowd try to stop Jesus, but common sense also tried to stop an unstoppable savior. I'm standing at a familiar site for many of us. With an average annual attendance of over 52 million visitors, Walt Disney World is the most visited vacation resort in the world. But how and why did Walt Disney buy up all this land? What he did is he set up dozens of corporations to buy up what seemed to be worthless plots of land. Most of it was swamp land or maybe some cattle pasture. Matter of fact, most of the people who sold their property were glad to get rid of the property. By May of 1965, much of the land had already been purchased and speculation began to rise about who was behind all of this purchase. Finally, the Orlando Sentinel produced a story that said Walt Disney World is the one that's buying up all of this land. And as you might imagine, the price of the land started to jump once they realized what was going on. That's why Walt Disney's first acre cost him $80 and the last acre for Walt Disney World cost $80,000. Now here's the question, why would he pay $80,000 for an acre of swampland? It just doesn't make any sense. But the reason why he did is because he saw the land, not for what it was, but for what it was going to be. That's why at the grand opening of Disney World in 1971, his wife was there at the grand opening, standing by someone. It's reported that that person said to her, oh, it's too bad that Walt couldn't see this. And she turned to that person and said, oh, he did see it. That's why we're here today. Now back to our story in Matthew chapter 16. Why would Jesus defy common sense and pay such a high price for you and me, even though we were undeserving? That's the part of the gospel that really flies in the face of common sense. Romans chapter five, verse eight reminds us that it's while we were still sinners that Christ died for us. I mean, if we had been there with Peter when Christ first announced his plan to die, we might have tried to stop Jesus too, knowing that we don't deserve for him to give his life a ransom for us. Not while we're stuck in a swamp of sin, drowning in brokenness and selfishness, in lust, addiction, in pain and hatred, in deceit and, and shame. God paid a great price for you. He did it not for who we were, but he did it because he could see who you were going to be. He could see the treasure that you were going to be. He wasn't building a, a magic kingdom. No, he was building the kingdom of heaven on earth. And in Matthew chapter 13, verse 44, it says that the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure that a man discovered hidden in a field and in his excitement, he hid it again and he sold everything he owned to get enough money to buy that field. Most theologians believe that in that story, Jesus represents the one who's making the great purchase. And in that story, you and I are the treasure. It doesn't make sense. It flies in the face of common sense, but he paid a great price to purchase you, the treasure of the kingdom. Wow, the unstoppable savior. You know, the crowd thought 
they could stop him in Nazareth. Herod thought he could stop him when he was just a small child. And the devil thought the cross would stop him. We read in Mark chapter 15, verse 25 and 26. Now it was the third hour or about nine o'clock in the morning and they crucified him. And the inscription of his accusation was written above, the King of the Jews. Well, let's just look at this from Satan's perspective for a moment, because I believe at that moment on that day, Satan saw what was happening. Finally, I believe he thinks that he's got Jesus in a place where he will not escape the cross. After all the attempts to stop him, I think he feels like I'm finally going to be able to do it. After I had Herod kill all the two-year-old boys in under and, and I had riled up the crowd in Nazareth and that all failed, now look at him. He's bleeding all over himself. He's covered in blood. I've got him. He's on the cross. And there's where I'm going to stop him. There is where he will die. Look at him. Look at him. His back is mangled. It's a mangled mess from the beatings I gave him. I'm sure as the enemy, Satan himself, looked and saw the crown of thorns pressed into his scalp, nothing but glee could come across his face. Look at him. No doubt, Satan said to his demonic hordes gathered there, look at him. I've driven nails through his hands and through his feet. He will never use those hands again to touch a blind man and make him see. He will never use those hands to break a piece of bread and feed thousands. It's over for him. What he's done is over. Look at them, the people that trusted in him, the ones he said he came to seek and save. Look at them. They're disillusioned. They're downcast. They're moping and crying around the cross. This so-called Messiah they thought was going to save them. He's just about to take his last breath. And when this day is over, his followers will go back to what they were doing before. And one day soon, the memory of what has happened will be just that, only a memory. And I'm sure that enemy looking on would have heard those last barely audible Words coming from the lips of Christ. It 
is finished. And I'm sure the enemy thought to himself, yes, that's right. It is finished. Can you imagine the party in the kingdom of darkness over the celebration of finally stopping Jesus, the one who had come to seek and save the lost? The happiness and the glee of the demon hordes of hell. Surely, no doubt was going on for the rest of that day, the next and the next. But then on that third day, I can just imagine a demon slipping into the midst of the party, whispering, he's alive. What do you mean he's alive? I saw him take his last breath on that cross. I saw them take him down, his body limp, all life gone. I saw them put him in the grave in that tomb and cover it up. What do you mean he's alive? And then I'm sure the demon said something like, well, about that grave, it's empty too. Well, there's no stopping the Savior who came to seek and save. And the thing that Satan intended the cross to end the story, it simply was not the ending. It was the ending for the mission here on earth as to be followed by the resurrection, but it was just the beginning of our story. My mom came in, saw me distraught on the floor and said, son, the only chance you have is to get right with the Lord. I dropped on that hospital floor and I said, Lord Jesus, if you save her, I'll serve you one day and help people with drug and alcohol problems. And the next morning, the Lord Jesus woke her out of a coma, death coma, she began speaking and three days later, she walked out of the hospital like it never happened. I wish I could say that my life totally was radically changed at that point, but it wasn't. And so I returned to the darkness. After going through a divorce and everything else, and, and the emptiness and the darkness, I came to the end of myself on August the 9th of, of 2004. And I, I said to the Lord, that's it. I can't do this anymore. And I'm sorry for not answering your call. I'm sorry for choosing the drugs and the women and everything else and the alcohol over you. And today I choose you. My parents had been praying for me all these years, and I know today it was a result of their prayers, the intervention that the Holy Spirit spoke to me. It was because I had a vision of my parents, and then I heard the Holy Spirit speak to me that it was, you gotta stop doing what you're doing. I saw my parents broken on the floor crying, and I called every drug dealer and drug lord and said, I'm done. They're like, did you get in trouble? What's going on, we need a meeting. No, 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 no trouble. Spiritual experience, can't explain to you, I'm done. I'll pay you whatever, I'm out of this. And so therefore I surrendered and he started to rebuild me inside and out. And so much so that I knew I was called into ministry. I knew that I was called to be married again. And by the grace of God, even though I had been through an abortion 
a divorce and what most people would write off as, you're no good, you'll never be good for anybody. He brought me my beloved Candace, who is my wife today. And by the grace of God, he's blessed us with beautiful twins that already know the Lord. All the years that I had thrown away my life, resources, money, and chasing everything, the enemy was having his heyday. And on the surface, you would think, that's it, he's done. And when everyone thought that my road was ended, and even when I wanted to kill myself, there was the Lord. And that he is unstoppable because the enemy's plans against my life did not prevail. What the enemy meant for destruction and death to drag me to hell, there was Jesus and he stopped the whole train. The minute that I just said, yes, that's it. And the grips of Satan were taken off of me. And I praise God that I have freedom in Christ today to continue on this path that he has set forth. That testimony that Jerry gave was so exciting and I am so glad that the one that was unstoppable that came to this earth to seek and save people like Jerry. Um, and so many millions and millions and millions and more around the world. He truly is the Savior who will not stop until everyone has had the opportunity to hear and to know him. Well, Jerry knows Christ, but what about you? What about you? Maybe you're there with family, or maybe you're a neighbor who was invited over, or maybe you've just by accident, you thought, picked this stream up on your computer or your phone. But God has a plan for your life, and he wants you to know him. So let me tell you a little about this unstoppable Savior, this King, because that's what he is. He's a King. In the words of S.M. Lockridge, my King is a seven-way King. He's the King of the Jews. That's a racial King. He's the King of Israel. That's a national King. He's the King of righteousness. He's the King of heaven. He's the King of glory. He's the King of kings, and He's the Lord of lords. Well, I wonder, do you know this unstoppable Savior? David said, the heavens declare the glory of God, and His firmament showeth forth His handiwork. My King is a sovereign King. No means of measure can define His limitless love. No far-reaching telescope can bring into visibility the coastline of his shoreless supply. He's enduringly strong. He's entirely sincere. He's eternally steadfast. He's immortally graceful. He's imperially powerful. He's impartially merciful. Well, I wonder, do you know this unstoppable Savior? He's the greatest phenomenon that ever crossed the horizon of this world. He's God's son. He's a sinner's savior. He's the centerpiece of civilization. He stands in the solitude of himself. He's August and he's unique. He's unprecedented. He's unparalleled. He's the loftiest idea in literature. He's the highest personality 
in philosophy. He's the supreme problem of higher criticism. He's a fundamental doctrine of true theology. He's a core necessity of true spiritual religion. He's the miracle of the ages. He's the superlative of everything good that you would choose to call him. He's the only one qualified to be an all-sufficient Savior. Well, I wonder, do you know him today? He supplies strength to the weak. He's available for the tempted and the tried. He sympathizes and he saves. He strengthens and sustains. He guards and he guides. He heals the sick. He raised the lepers. He forgives sinners. He discharges debtors. He delivers the captives. He defends the feeble. He blesses the young. He serves the unfortunate. He regards the aged. He rewards the diligent. And he beautifies the meek. Well, I wonder, do you know him today? My king, he's the key of knowledge. He's the wellspring of wisdom. He's a doorway of deliverance. He's the pathway of peace. He's a roadway of righteousness. He's a highway of holiness. He's the gateway of glory. Well, his office is manifold. His promise is sure. His love never changes. His word is enough. His grace is sufficient. His reign is righteous. His yoke is easy and his burden is light. Well, I wish I could describe him to you, but he's indescribable. He's incomprehensible. He's invincible. He's irresistible. Well, the heaven of heavens cannot contain him, let alone man explain him. Well, you can't get him out of your mind. You can't get him off your hands. You can't outlive him and you can't live without him. Well, he always has been, and he always will be. There was nobody before him, and there will be nobody after him. He had no predecessor, and he shall have no successor. Well, you can't impeach him, and he's not going to resign. Well, the Pharisees, they couldn't stand him, but they found out they couldn't stop him. Pilate couldn't find any fault in him. The two witnesses couldn't get their testimony to agree. Herod couldn't kill him. Death couldn't handle him. And the grave could not hold him down. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever and ever. This unstoppable Savior would let nothing, nothing stop him from coming to you today with this message of love. I don't know what you're facing. I don't know what you're going through. But this unstoppable Savior has stopped today to reach out to you. One day, Jesus was walking along with a crowd of people and blind Bartimaeus was over at the side at his usual place begging. 
and he heard that Jesus was coming by. And he called out. And the people tried to get him to be quiet. But in his calling out to Jesus, Jesus heard his voice and stopped. This one who would not allow the enemy or others that rose up against him to stop him, when he heard a voice calling his name, he stopped. And he told them to call for him. And blind Bartimaeus makes his way over to Christ. And Jesus looks at him and says, what do you want? What do you need? And of course, Bartimaeus says, to be healed, to see, Lord. And Jesus looked at him. He already knew what he was going to ask for. He already knew what he needed. But when he asked Bartimaeus to ask him or to tell him what he wanted, at that moment, Jesus looks back and says, your faith has healed you. You're calling out to me in desperation. You're telling me what your need was. That act of faith has brought healing to your life. Many of you watching this program, you may not be blind, but you may be sitting there needing Christ who has stopped for you. Maybe your marriage is just a mess. Domestic abuse, as we've heard from law enforcement, has gone up a great deal since this stay at home and all the events and losing jobs is taking place. So maybe you're sitting there and your marriage is anything than where it should be. Or maybe you're there and your need is financial. You don't know what you're going to do financially, or maybe you're overwhelmed with fear and worry, perplexed about tomorrow. Or maybe you have become addicted. Maybe in this crisis you've turned to alcohol or something else to try to numb the pain. Or maybe you're sitting there or standing there and you're one of those who have yet to find him as savior. What a great need. But whatever needs you have today, we're gonna to pray in just a moment. And I'm gonna ask you to do what Jesus asked blind Bartimaeus. What do you need? What do you need? Maybe it's some other need than what we've mentioned. What do you need? And as we pray today, I, I ask you from the depth of your heart, tell him what you need. Just tell him. And faith is already working in your heart. We're gonna pray, first of all, for those that have needs and in your life, whether it's even healing in the last few days. I've heard of people that need to, a healing. They've gone through surgery. 
And then we're going to pray for those who need Christ. So why don't you just bow your heads with us right now, please, as I pray over those of you that just speak that need to Christ, even as we pray. Father, Father in heaven, thank you that you sent your son, Jesus Christ, Savior, the unstoppable Savior, to seek us and to find us. God, we have so many needs this moment. And wherever people are listening to this broadcast, God, I pray that they would simply, through their lips or through their hearts, utter their need to you. God, you're a merciful God. You're a compassionate Lord. And I pray today for that marriage that needs healing. I pray today, oh Lord, for that person who's sick and needs a healing in their bodies. God, I pray for that one that's worried and depressed, downtrodden in their minds and emotions. God, lift their spirits today. That's what they need from you, Lord. Touch and minister to all of those who express a need to you. In Jesus' name. And now, for those of you that need Christ, I'm going to ask you to pray a little bit differently. I want to ask you to pray after me as I just lead you in a simple prayer of repentance. Speak it out loud if you're by yourself or even if you feel comfortable in doing so with others around, but speak it out loud in your heart and pray this prayer after me. Dear Lord Jesus, just say it. Dear Lord Jesus, I thank you that you have come to seek me and to save me. I ask you to forgive me of all my sins. I ask you, Lord, to change my life. Help me, O oh Lord God, to surrender totally and completely to your Lordship. And I thank you today. You have stopped for me to seek and save me. In Jesus' name, amen. For those of you that prayed that prayer, either the first time in your life or you're turning back to Christ, we're going to put a number up for you to pick up your phone and call, or not call, but text. We want you to text this number that's going to be on the screen. All you have to do is text this number, put your full name, 321-204-1011. 321-204-1011. We'll leave it up there for just a moment because we want you to take the time to do this. So text this number, put your full name in, and they're going to respond. You'll get an automatic response. And then you should every day get a devotional or instruction that will help you in your walk with God. And these things, as you follow through with them, will help you to become a disciple of Christ. God bless you richly today. We love and bless each and every one of you.
Praise the Lord. We're so thankful that each and every one of you are there. What an incredible message. And that message and all our messages can be found online. We do archive them. So feel free to share them or revisit them. And brothers and sisters, we're here for you. We want to serve you. We know that this is a difficult time for many of you. And so we've set up a special section on our website, the coronavirus section that you can visit there. And if you click on get assistance for COVID-19, we'll be able to reach out to you and help you. Also at this time, we're gonna pause for the next three minutes. And for all of you that are prepared to observe communion, we want you to do that. Gather the people there that are with you, whether you're alone or in your household and whatever instructions you may have already received, just follow through with those. And we're gonna pause now for the next three minutes, but stick around because right afterwards, we have an incredible Kids Way program for your children. God bless you.